Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Today is Monday, October 26th, eight days before perhaps the most consequential presidential election in U.S. history. Never has an election induced this level of tension and anxiety, with fears not only about the outcome of the vote, but the very durability of American democracy in in its wake. What should we be paying attention to at this point in time? What trends or through lines from past elections should, should we be noticing? There's no shortage of punditry on the topic, but I'm de- delighted to be hosting today two of the keenest observers of electoral politics in the country and in Los Angeles that I know of, Lynn Vavrek and Zev Yaroslavsky, who represent a great mix of perspectives drawn from the world of data-driven scholarship, as well as from the field of deeply engaged political, political activity. Thank you so much for joining us on Then and Now, Lynn and Zev. Happy to be here. Same here. Great. So just a brief word of introduction for our two guests. Lynn Vavrek holds the Marvin Hoffenberg Professorship of American Politics and Public Policy at UCLA. She's a contributing columnist to The Upshot at The New York Times and has written or co-written five books, two of which we'll be talking about today. Identity Crisis, the 2016 Presidential Election and the Battle for the Meaning of America, and The Gamble, Choice and Chance in the 2012 Presidential Election. She's also a leader of Nationscape, one of the largest public opinion survey projects ever undertaken in this country. And Zev Yaroslavsky is the director of the Los Angeles Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA, where he is also a fellow, I'm pleased to say, of the Luskin Center for History and Policy. Zev served for nearly 20 years on the LA City Council, beginning with his stunning election at age 26 in 1975. And then in 1994, he was elected to a seat on the LA County Board of Supervisors, where he served with distinction until 2014. Since retiring from the board, Zev has been at UCLA teaching, researching, and conducting an annual quality of life survey for the LA Initiative. So our conversations on this podcast are divided into then and now, past and present. So let's start with the past. Lynn, you've studied and written books about the previous two presidential elections. You even dared to write a book with John Sides, The Gamble, uh, about the 2012 election in the middle of the campaign. In that book, you developed a set of economic criteria to predict the outcome. I was hoping that you could tell us what were they and do you think they were right? Yeah. Um, Well, thanks. And thanks for having us uh, to talk about this really exciting last week of the 2020 election. Um, In 2012, I did write this book with John Sides, who's at Vanderbilt University. And we wrote it in real time, as you said, during the campaign. And one of the reasons that we thought that we could do that is because that particular election was an election in a slowly growing economy after a global financial crisis with a popular incumbent president. Um, And there were just some things that we know from political science uh, and from the research looking into elections since the New Deal and, quite frankly, even before the New Deal, um, that are very robust predictors of election outcomes. And so we didn't develop these criteria, but we applied them in 2020 to demonstrate how the landscape or the context of a presidential election is very important to the outcome of that presidential election. And that's not to say that the candidates aren't important too. They definitely are. They're gonna help voters make sense of that context. So I think of this as sort of like um, the campaign is a play and and the context is the stage setting. What is the stage dressing look like? Are we in a small town? Are we in a big city? The candidates get to, to you know, deliver the script. But these economic indicators that almost always are important 
Um, the, the one that I like to focus on is the change in growth in the growth rate. So GDP or GNP change in the first month of an election for six months, I'm sorry, for six months of an election year. So from January to June of a presidential election year, if the economy is growing, the incumbent party typically wins. You would be right. Okay. So let's just say there are only two political parties. You know, you could flip a coin and be right 50% of the time. So, but if you look at the economic indicator, you could be right 70% of the time. So you do better than a coin flip. Um, and it structures the way that election is going to play out. Who's going to take credit for the booming economy? Who's going to distance themselves from a shrinking economy? And then who has to change the topic onto something other than the economy, which is always important to voters. Interesting. And yes, I still think it's relevant. The last part of your question. I still well, think it's relevant. We're going to try and trace this. Uh, set of criteria, this stage that you described um, through 2016 up to 2020. But I want to hear from Zev. What do you remember from the 2012 election? What 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 was decisive in your analysis of that election? Well, I thought that uh, you know, go back to 2008, 2009, when the economy was in free fall and there was a total collapse uh, in the middle of the of the general election campaign of 2008. Um, and just to refresh everybody's memory, there were concerns about whether the banks would have enough money if you went to withdraw your, your funds. I remember I myself had to take my campaign funds and make sure that they were segregated, you know, under $200,000 so that they would be insured. Uh, there was a, there was a certain level of panic, uh, that was setting in and, uh, that was the environment of the 2008 election and it was total economic chaos and, and concern. So when you compare 2012 to 2008, um, you know, I think most people, most observers would say that the Obama administration uh, did a very competent job in rescuing the economy, uh, keeping it from falling over the cliff, um, salvaging uh, General Motors and, and other, other major uh, companies that were important to our national economy. Uh, and they had confidence in him. I think uh, you know, the, the majority of people had had confidence and the economy was growing, albeit slowly, but it was moving in the right direction. Uh, at the same time, of course, there was the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that was being played out in 2009 and 10. And the Democrats, having basically a one vote majority in the Senate, uh, jammed it through because it was their only way to, to do it. And uh, it created uh, a big upheaval in more conservative parts of the country and the Republican Party, especially. And this was the birth of the Tea Party movement, at least on on everybody's radar screen. I think it was something that was building for some time. Uh, and and so I think Obama, uh, you know, had had to just be mindful of of that side of the uh, of, of his flank uh, and not to see that movement uh, overtake him in the states that he had won and that were critical to his winning the Electoral College. Uh, he lost some states in 2012, that a couple of them, I think, uh, Iowa and Indiana come to mind, uh, that he had won in 2008. And there were several states where he won narrowly. Uh, I, I, I don't know if he lost, yeah, I think he, he, he lost Iowa and Indiana and in, in, I may be off on that. No, he lost Indiana in 2012, but there were a couple of states that he lost, and there were several that were that were close. It was a close election. Most people don't remember that it was a close election. It wasn't the outcome was not free from doubt until until the end. Um, so I I think that uh, you know it's consistent with what Lynn is saying. And by the way, let me just say I'm honored to be on a panel with Lynn. <laughs> this is this is a mismatch <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Not uh, true. She is, she is one of the great uh, experts on this on this er in this area. I can bring some anecdotal uh, a view to this, uh, but I think what what I've just described was consist is consistent with what Lynn described in her 2012 book. Okay, well, let's then apply the wisdom from 2012, if we can, to 2016, or at least engage into in, in a bit of a comparison because. Um, uh, Lynn, you also wrote a book on that election, um, which I mentioned, Identity Crisis. And there, you and your co-authors focused, if I understand correctly, less on the economic criteria, the state, the economic stage setting that you described just a minute ago, and more on um, cultural factors, such as race and ethnicity, which 
you say, you argue, Donald Trump knew how to exploit rather uniquely. Um, yes. And so I guess my first question is, um, what happened to those criteria and that wonderful model that you set up in 2012 by the time you got to 2016? Right. So still there. So this is a great, I love that we're working through these elections um, cycle by cycle. The framework is the same. So let's take a look at what's going on with the growth rate in the first six months of 2016. Um, as Zeph just said, like, you know, 2012 had slow, modest growth, but growth. 2016 had the same, slow, modest growth, but growth. So if you're the incumbent party, that's pretty good for you. So that suggests that Hillary Clinton um, ought to have been focusing and reminding people the Democratic Party is helping you recover from global financial crisis. We're still coming back. The growth, you know, da, da, da. And in the beginning, she was doing that. When she announced her campaign, she did it online. She had a video. Some people may remember this, uh, where she was walking through a neighborhood and, and she said, you know, all these people are buying new houses and moving into new houses and getting new jobs because the economy is coming back. They're everyday Americans. And that was the phrase that they were working with, everyday Americans. And then at the end, she said, I'm going to try to move into a new house too and start a new job. And she declared her candidacy. That was in the beginning. Then Donald Trump came down the escalator in the moments everybody remembers um, and almost immediately started refracting everything in his campaign through a lens of identity politics, um, whether it was race, ethnicity, religion, or gender. He did it all. And his candidacy was so unusual that as it unfolded, um, the the Clinton campaign then became very focused not on their own everyday American people starting new jobs, look at what the Democratic Party has done for you, but in highlighting the character attributes of Trump as a candidate. Um, and, you know, I think that it's important to say, I'm sure almost anybody would have done that. So this is not saying that they you know, they should not have done this. I think anybody running against Donald Trump in 2016 would have looked at his candidacy and said, wow, um, we got to make hay out of the fact that this guy is such and he's breaking all the rules and saying things that, you know, candidates don't say and behaving in ways and look at his past and look at all these, you know, it's his just his portfolio was too rich not to go after. But in doing that, they lost that through line about the economy. Now, on the other side, um, Donald Trump understands in 2016 that his he is not advantaged on the economy going into that election. His party uh, is the party that has to refocus the election off of the economy if he's going to win. And that's what he does. He refocuses the entire election off of how the Democrats are bringing everybody back from the global financial crisis and on to... What does it mean to be an American? Why are all these people who don't look like you, who don't look like Americans, who don't act like Americans, getting to cut in front of you in line? You've paid the dues, you've worked hard, you've waited your turn, and they're getting special privileges. So that's not a new message. Um, we can go back in time and we can see that message having traction in the past in the 1960s among white ethnics in the Northeastern and Midwestern parts of the country. Trump is adopting that and making it a message in 2020. And so in very much the same way that I told the story of 2012, where the Obama campaign went out there and owned the economy, the Clinton and, and the Romney campaign, let's just contrast that for one second. What did, what did Mitt Romney do in 20, 2012? Um, try, he didn't really try to refocus the election off of the economy, he tried to persuade people into thinking that Obama promised you more growth. He hasn't delivered the growth he said he would. Therefore, he has not done his job, kick him out. A campaign that I like to call, it's the counterfactual stupid. That's very hard for people. The It's the economy stupid, the Bill Clinton campaign in 92. Very simple. Are you better off today than you were four years ago? It's the counterfactual is very hard for people to make sense of. In 2016, Trump doesn't do that. He doesn't say it's not as good as it should be. He says, I'm refocusing the whole thing. We're going to slice this pie on a different cutting line. And um, the election is going to be about something else. 
So the implication is, um, had the Clinton campaign stayed the course and had more discipline than, and not been distracted, then perhaps it could have followed the pattern and trend of 2012. But I want to just raise three factors. One, um, that sort of undercurrent of populism, named, particularly white ethnic populism that you referred to as you know, a powerful, albeit episodic current in American uh, life and politics. Two, Trump's unique capacities as a disruptor and a deflector, I mean, which are really almost unparalleled in our time. And three, the larger global moment, because, you know, we, we could succumb to a kind of American exceptionalism or a Trumpian exceptionalism, say he was a unique disruptor. But, you know, we got, then think of Orban and John, Boris Johnson and Erdogan and Netanyahu and Kaczynski and um, uh, Marine Le Pen, and you can go on and on. And that leads you to this sort of club of illiberal populists around the world, and Trump is one of them. So it was it simply a matter of, you know, Hillary not staying the course, or had she stayed the course? Could she have resisted this enormous convergence of factors, including a global tide? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I, I, would, I would love for Zev to pick that up in a minute. Like, how hard is it to be a candidate in a moment like that? Um, and not get sucked into your opponent's message and, and dominance. But just to answer your question, I want to say um, leadership matters and political elites and political entrepreneurs play a big role in how these elections play out. And so you are absolutely 100% right. Trump is not creating these attitudes. Anybody who's looked at any public opinion data going back for the last 60 years has seen these kinds of, let's say, you know, pro-American attitudes. Um, and the difference is, are elites going to come and activate those attitudes or not? And when I say activate, I mean um, sort of, throw gasoline on the embers and, and, and make them flame and start a fire. The attitudes are there. Lots, And this is true for all sorts of attitudes in America. There are groups of people that hold all kinds of attitudes. They don't become important ingredients in the vote recipe unless candidates come along and activate them and say, this election is going to be about this. And why do they do that? Lots of reasons, but one of the main ones is they think that they are closer to most voters on this than their opponent, and their opponent is stuck in a position from which they cannot move that is unpopular. And so Trump saw that that there was this pool of people. In the book, we say he went hunting where the ducks are. So he saw that there was a pool of people out there with these attitudes. By the way, the same way that Mitt Romney saw them and John McCain saw them, this was not news to anybody running uh, in a Republican primary or on a Republican ticket in the last several decades. Those prior two candidates explicitly to their consultants said, both of them running against Barack Obama, that we are not going to win by pushing on identity. We're not. And so they tried not to do that. Trump decided that that's how he wanted to win. Um, so, you know, there were 17 other people or there were 17 people in total running for that Republican nomination in 2016. One person, one person activated those attitudes. The other 16 ran other kinds of campaigns. So leadership matters. Um, and just because the attitudes are there doesn't mean that they have to eventually get expressed and become features of an outcome. Right. Okay, so Zev, yes, you're not Lynn, but you're Zev, um, and you got a lot of experience, and you're a student of history too. And I'm curious how you see the uh, the, the phenomenon of Donald Trump in 2016. What what was the spark that became that 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 conflagration? So uh, I'll tell you a, a very quick story. I'm having dinner one night at somebody's you know 70th birthday party, and I'm sitting next to. Uh, the former uh, COO of AIG, uh, and it's 2015, late 2015, and I say to him, I said, I don't understand why this guy gets any traction whatsoever, and he was just starting to ascend at that point in time, Trump, and he says to me, he says, well, don't underestimate the power of celebrity 
and wealth. People are fascinated by celebrity and by wealth, you know, the life of the rich and famous, uh, all of that stuff. And since I've never been fascinated by wealth or celebrity, uh, <laughs> that's why I'm very bad at trivial pursuits when it comes to television and motion pictures. Uh, I, I was really uh, taken by that statement. And the more this campaign unfolded, the more I realized that no matter what the other 16 candidates were saying, and some of them were pretty conservative uh, and trying to articulate things kind of like Trump was doing, and it just wasn't selling because he he was the guy who was uh, had a television show. He, you know, he was the guy uh, who had names on high-rise buildings and hotels and golf courses all over the place. And they're interested in him. They're fascinated by him. And in a way, unlike, you know, the present time, I hope, but um, at that point, th there was there was no price to be paid. There's no apparent price to be paid if you were conservative and going with this guy who's, by the way, taking on the establishment and everybody likes to take on the establishment. And uh, there were a lot of cultural changes that had taken place during the Obama years, especially in his second term. Um, and, and the, you know, he... You know, we are, those of us who used to play poker, um, you know, use this poker analogy. Uh, in the electoral sense, he was drawing to an inside straight, maybe even an inside straight flush. Uh, before I was in politics, I used to play poker. It's how I put myself through college, uh, in part. And uh, I hit on a few inside straights. In fact, I hit on an inside straight flush once. It doesn't happen but once or twice in a lifetime, but it happens. And all the stars align for him. Um, the thing that I would say about 2016 uh, is that the Democratic candidate and the Democratic Party generally forgot how to talk to, you know, working class America. Uh, two years after the election, Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, Democratic senator, was up for election. He was here in Los Angeles and had a fundraiser. I asked him the question, how are you going to win a state? a re-election in a state that Hillary Clinton lost by eight or nine points. And he said, diplomatically, he said, when I go home every weekend from Washington to Ohio, I go to small town, Ohio. I go to the, I go to church in the small towns. I call the county commissioner and the mayor of the small towns. I make sure I'm in touch with, with the small towns and I know what their frustrations and what their aspirations are. And he said then the following, until the Democratic Party learns how to talk to small town America, we'll win the next election by more than the 3 million popular votes that Hillary won, but we'll lose the Electoral College maybe by more than she lost it. And that's, that has stuck with me. And I think one of the reasons that Biden appears to be uh, in a stronger position this time is that he, he has a reputation and a persona and he and he's making an effort to speak to small town America, to, to mainstream, you know, middle income America. And uh, as I tell Let's give the it names, Dave. It's, it's Scranton. It's right. Scranton. <laughs> it's it's um, uh, Macomb County, Michigan. It's uh, it, it's what used to be the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. It's white, working class, blue collar uh, folks who have been uh, historically part of the Democratic coalition, and somehow uh, they were lost. Now, that doesn't mean you sell out your, your principles, but you've got to talk to them. People will respect you if you talk. This is my politician's experience. Even people who disagree with you, uh, if you treat them with respect and you explain your position, uh, and they may not even vote for you, but they may vote for you because you treated them with respect. People will re reciprocate. Uh, in the way you treat them. And the Democratic Party has increasingly become a party uh, that is west of the Colorado River and east of the Hudson. And between those two rivers is a whole other country out there. And as Sherrod Brown said, yeah, we've got to know how to talk to them. And I think that was part of what happened in 2016, is the Democratic Party, for a lot of reasons, I mean, Hillary was distracted by the FBI business uh, and, the, and the, the, the emails, and she went down that rabbit hole, then she, you know, the thing that, that Lynn talked about, uh, which I won't repeat, uh, that was a factor, but they lost, uh, they lost their footing. Uh, and, and look, at the end of the day, she didn't lose by much. <laughs> she lost by 70,000 votes in three states. Uh, any number of things. I used to say, if I'm going to lose an election, I hope it's by a lot because I don't want to have to replay 
you know, what went, what could I have done? If there's not, if you leave it all on the field and you lose, you lose. Uh, she, you know, I, I'm sure that till her dying day, she will replay a lot of decisions that they made or didn't make during the course of that campaign. So it's not like there was this tsunami uh, that showed up. The tsunami was building for a long time. It goes back to Nixon. It goes to Reagan. Uh, it goes to 2009 and 10, where the Tea Party, you know, the proximate cause of the uprising of the Tea Party was Obamacare. But in fact, there were a lot of other issues. There was race. There was uh, gender issues. There were uh uh, sexual orientation issues. There was gay marriage that came up after the 2012 election. And there was a lot of cultural changes that were being brought to bear on that area between the Hudson and the Colorado that was moving from their point of view. Uh, you can understand why they might think it's moving too far too fast. And and you you, you put all of these, these uh, and I don't believe that it was moving too far too fast. Let me just make it clear. I'm just trying to walk a mile in their shoes. Uh, and if you want to win an election, you got to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, at least understand what's driving them. Uh, and that's that's what I think was missing in 2016. Now, having said that, um, I don't think you can divorce. This goes to your really overarching question is, are we part of an international uh, erosion of democratic institutions? Uh, I, I think it's hard not not to at least raise the possibility that that's going on. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and it's not new. I mean, look, look at, you know, Adolf Hitler came to power with 30, 33% of the vote in uh, 1932 or 33, whatever year it was. And, uh, and, and it didn't take him long to consolidate power, get rid of his opposition, take over the press and look at what Donald Trump has done in three and a half years. Uh, he has eroded is uh, well on his way to eroding the the, the institutions of, of an independent judiciary. Uh, he has put the, the the press on the defensive, although I think the press has, has held its own uh, for the time being. Um, he has totally incapacitated Republicans in the in the Congress, both in the Senate and the House. Not one of them is willing to uh, to make any meaningful. Uh, parting of the of the ways with him. Uh, imagine, I, I, I look at it from a historical perspective and other authoritarians who've come to power, uh, you get controls of the levers of communication and the levels of the judiciary, and you wake up one morning and all of a sudden uh, you're, in a, you're an authoritarian regime. And I think, uh, you know, anyway, I, I, I do think that, that we are part of a larger you know, there's a there's a big river flowing here, and uh, and we're in that river, and uh, and I think it's all part of the same thing. It, it, it's certain assumptions that people have made in their lives are no longer uh, relevant. People have lost jobs; they've had to be retrained for jobs that are not as fulfilling and pay less. Um, there, so there's a resentment that is built up, um, and this is not just in the United States, but it's in in Europe and in South America, and 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 so it goes. Right. I just want to say that that, that that principle that you articulated from your own experience of respect the voter is, of course, especially one with whom you disagree, is a model that Donald Trump has completely shattered. I mean, he's respected his base, but almost entirely disregarded, and one might even say disrespected, uh, those with whom he doesn't agree. So I want to sort of now move to um, talk with you about what we learned from these uh, two past elections. What are some of the, you know, we have Lynn's model from 2012. It, 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 it worked, but didn't work, or worked in the negative, perhaps, in 2016, um, insofar as the party um, with the economic uh, headwinds in its favor did not stay the course. Um, we're heading to an election in a week. Um, what do we learn, either in terms of the analytical and predictive tools of political science or simply in terms of the pendulous swing of American politics. And here I'm particularly thinking of racial dynamics, which have been so pronounced. So, Lynn, what do you think we learned from these two case studies about which you've written books as we move into 2020? Yeah. Yeah. So 2020 is um, just so unusual in that the, the presidential race starts out one way and then gets 
shocked and changed and becomes a different kind of race. So what I mean by that is let's take the model growth rate in the first six months of an election year. So in January, things were looking pretty good in terms of economic growth um, and where it was going to head between January and June. And in, you know, sort of like February, Donald Trump is seeing all this Democratic primary action, all these rallies out there and all the enthusiasm on the Democratic side. And he says, I'm going to start my campaign now. So he goes out and I think he goes down to Florida and he literally kicks off his 2020 campaign by saying to people, I know you don't like me very much, but you're going to vote for me. You know why? I brought you this booming economy. And I heard that and I said to myself, like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't think that he could run that kind of what I call a clarifying campaign, clarifying his role in bringing about the good economy. I, I thought that, you know, his tactic is win the news cycle every day, get in the, no matter how provocative or outrageous I have to be, win the news cycle every day. And this sort of economic message I thought wasn't going to be exciting enough for him. But there he was kicking off his campaign repeatedly on this and only on this. And, and I just thought, wow, that is going to make him very hard to beat. And then six weeks or so later, COVID happens. And um, all of a sudden, we have a country and a world in crisis. And all of that economic growth is gone. And in fact, what is happening to the nation's economy is unprecedented. And certainly in this short period of time, in anybody's lifetime who's going to vote in this election. So now all of a sudden, Trump goes from being the candidate whose party is advantaged on the economy and indeed the actual incumbent to being the candidate who has brought you the disaster. Now, as he rightly points out, he could not have seen COVID Nobody can predict a hundred year global pandemic. Okay. But he is culpable for how government helps people deal with the crisis. Um, and so that then becomes what he has to, he's now back to where he was in 2016. He's got to refocus the election off of the economy and his performance and onto something else. But this time it's his economy that he's trying to refocus off of. So it's different, but the same. And so where does he go? He then gets confronted with another national crisis, the killing of George Floyd on Memorial Day weekend and the protests that followed. And that plays right into his sort of uh, songbook from 2016 about identity. And so he goes all in on, um, refracting these messages about police and law and order through a lens of identity. I saved your neighborhoods from the unruly mob. Um, and so then that becomes his focus, then gets super complicated when he gets COVID and all these people in the White House now have, the whole thing is difficult in that moment. And I think that's where we are. And Biden then, let's just say, now understands, he gets the nomination, COVID hit, he understands. So let's just back up even before COVID hits. What's Joe Biden talking about? I, he's, he's singing those songs from 2016. This is a battle for the soul of America. We are better than this. Okay. Now that uh, one of the title chapters of our book, Identity Crisis on 2016, was Battle for the Soul of a Nation. John Meacham, the historian, wrote a book with similar title. Okay, so this is a thing, but Biden was going to was set to run his whole campaign saying we're better than this guy, which is a lot like what Hillary Clinton did in 2016. And, you know, why you would rerun a losing campaign, I don't know. But then COVID hits and the Biden campaign recognizes very quickly, this is a performance evaluation on Donald Trump's time in office. It's about the, the economy not doing well and his handling of COVID. And they go all in on that and they have not wavered from that. So now they are running the economically focused campaign. And so the model is still working, but in these four years that we've talked about, the parties really shift in what role they're playing relative to the economy. Right. But if we adopt your six month model, January to June, that's a loser for Trump. So he sort of 
makes recourse to the 2016 playbook, as you've, as you've suggested. Yes. Um, which is a winner with an increasingly small pool of people. Yes. Because um, you can't play uh, the economy card because it's not a winner for him. Yes. Right? That's right. So I mean, he's, sort it, yes. of stuck. he's sort of stuck with the old playbook, which sounds and, 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 and resonates old in 2020. For it, well, and I mean, I think that there could have been traction there. You know, he put the McCloskeys, the couple from St. Louis, on at the convention um, and, you know, they're sitting on that couch. They're looking right down the barrel of the camera saying to Americans, this could happen to you. This, these groups of people, those people, them, they, the other, not us, them, they could come to your neighborhood like they came to our neighborhood. And will you be ready? Donald Trump will help you be ready. And, you know, I thought that after that, um, you know, that's a strong message. And there is an appetite for that. In fact, in some of those small towns that Zev was talking about a moment ago. Um, But but where that comes off the rails, I think, and when we look back at the data and the narratives and everything from this election uh, is going to be when um, the Supreme Court nomination happens and then uh, all of the people around Trump and Trump and his family get COVID. And now the vice president's staff. Um, you think those are d- d- definitive or even dispositive factors? It's just impossible at that point to continue to make the dominant conversation about how people are going to vote, su- suburban crime and law and order and safety. Um, it is, it's impossible. It's like a magnet of COVID and he's trying so hard not to make it, make the choice about COVID. Um, but everybody who could believe the news the day that it was reported one person, Oh, two, Oh, three, Oh, Oh, the president and the first lady. Oh, and their son. And he's in the hospital and Oh, he's on act. Who could look away from that? It was unbelievable that it was happening. And so at that point, it's very hard to um, to make the election about something else. Let me let me add something to this uh, on the COVID. Um, and it, it occurred to me when COVID hit, uh, I hark back to a, a, a trip I, I took under the auspices of the National Democratic Institute, uh, which does democratization work in emerging democracies, <laughs> excuse the expression. And, uh, and I was in the Ukraine in 1993. And uh, uh, the, the woman who ran basically was the executive administrator of the city council of Kiev, invited our delegation to her one room apartment for dinner. And uh, I asked her, how did you get involved in this democratization stuff? And she said, well, it all started with Chernobyl, uh, 1986, 87. The regime was saying, uh, everybody's going to be fine. We have it under control, nothing to worry about. And then we started to see, you know, women uh, who were uh, pregnant, uh, delivering babies that were, uh, that, that had uh, deformities when they, when they were born or died in utero. Uh, they saw kids, uh, six, seven, eight, 10 year old kids getting cancer. And we realized that the, that, that the, uh, uh, the regime had no credibility. I said, I wouldn't fall on my sword, she said, for freedom of the press or freedom of expression or the right to protest, but don't get between me and my daughter. And she had a 13-year-old daughter. She was a single mom. I'll never forget this. It's going to chill up my spine, even now. Uh, when the COVID hit, I said, you know, you can talk fake news and make people believe it. You can talk uh, the economy is great and make people believe it, but you can't say this COVID thing is China's fault, or you can't say that we're, as he did the other day, 85% recovered, we're in the final lap, we're in the home stretch, everything's fine, because everybody in America now, just like everybody in that part of the Ukraine, knew somebody uh, who got sick, knew somebody who died. Uh, I know several people personally who have died from COVID. I know dozens and dozens of people who have had COVID, including three of my students in, in my public policy class last spring. You, you, so the credibility gap that we used to talk about with Lyndon Johnson, uh, there is an equally uh, powerful credibility gap with this guy. Uh, and I think one of the things that is holding him back uh, is that why should I believe him on the economy or why should I believe him about the suburbs and why should I believe him about A through Z when he's lying on something that I personally know to be a lie? 
not not that Walter Cronkite or, or Brian Williams or whoever it is is saying is a lie, but I know it's a lie because my grandfather uh, was on a ventilator for two weeks and died, or my aunt, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think that is um, his Achilles heel. If he loses this election, I, I, I agree with uh, with Lynn that that uh, this will be his undoing. Uh, if, if he is undone, I'm still not convinced about the results of this election. I, I have sticker shock from four years ago. And one of the things that I would hope you ask Lynn or I'll ask Lynn is, you know, the, the one thing a poll cannot really account for is the, 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 the can't quantify is the, the, uh, the it, voter suppression. How many votes are going to be are going to be suppressed? What kind of assumptions do you make about that? Uh, what kind of assumptions do you make about COVID and how that's going to impact people? Yeah, a lot of people are voting by mail. That's not a surprise and it's not a shock. These may have been the same people who would have voted on election day, but for COVID. So how do we account for those kinds of things? So I'm not at all convinced. Uh, and four years ago, I, I have to say uh, that I gave a talk on election day and I was asked to question, who do I think was going to win that night? And I said, I think it's 50-50, pick them. And it was it was a crowd of mixed partisan affiliations. And they were all shocked. Why do you say that? I said, I say that because it's the trends have been narrowing in Pennsylvania. They're narrowing in Michigan. I wasn't really paying much attention to Wisconsin. I didn't think uh, she'd win in Florida. I, I said, it's too close. It could go either way. And lo and behold, uh, you know, I'm a pessimist by design. Let's, let's, and now you say that because you were wrong in 2016. Well, I, I, so, look, I say that, David, David, you come from Scranton, Pennsylvania, the, the polls <laughs> in Pennsylvania, the, the last I saw the, on the real clear politics average to the extent you pay any attention to that, uh, shows it in the 5% range, five to six points ahead. That was two weeks out, maybe a little more than two weeks out. I don't think Hillary was much less behind or, or I'm sorry, less ahead uh, in 2016, two or two and a half weeks behind. So I'm, I'm nervous about it. And, uh, and, and, you know, and the other thing is that we can't account for uh, that pollsters can't really account for is uh, we're trying to, the Democrats are trying to get their vote out. He's trying to get his vote out. He's trying to get people who normally don't vote to come out and vote. I, I saw that in Kentucky in the 2019 gubernatorial race. That governor, the incumbent Republican governor, had a 29% favorability rating. That's a lot less than Trump's favorability rating across the country. And he only lost by 1%. Uh, he should have lost by 5 or 6%. And the reason, the reason for it was that the rural voters overperformed. Uh, and the pollsters didn't get that. So, yeah, I'm nervous. But I think COVID will be his undoing if, if he is undone. Okay. So I want to get to uh, the larger question lurks behind Zev's uh, more focused question, which is the reliability of polls. I mean, Lynn, you're a, you're a numbers cruncher extraordinaire. Um, you know, we all, you know, make our way to polls many times a day in this period. Um, and we sort of believe them, even though um, we... We felt deceived by 2016. Now, there's, of course, an analysis that the polls got it right. They predicted the popular election. Um, they didn't account for the electoral college. Okay. Tell us what we should be thinking about polls. The polls seem to suggest, you know, um, a very clear trend that's that may even yield, you know, something akin to a landslide. Um, what should we think about polls and their reliability? based on 2016's experience? Uh, polling as a science and as a craft is um, better than it's ever been. The, the you know, polling starts in the 30s and 40s, really becomes scientific in the 50s. And um, year on year, your election on election, the error in the polls just continues to go down as pollsters get better and better um, at, uh, at what they're doing. So it is not right to say I should throw out the polls because they're broken. They're not broken. Um, as you said, in 2016, the polls were very close. Uh, they predicted like a 1.3 margin for Clinton. And she got just about that, like uh, not margin, uh, like, you know, so she won by about that much. So 
she lost the electoral college, as you say, and those state polls had problems. But pollsters have learned when basically you're trying to get a balance in a state on Democrats and Republicans and men and women and different religions and ethnicities. Um, and what has started to happen over the last decade or so is education has become a more important driver of vote choice and it interacts with some of these other things. And people tend to um, have different education levels in different parts of your state. So geography and education sort of mattered in 2016 in a way that hadn't happened previously. And the election was so close that getting that mix wrong within a state, you're just trying to get Republicans. Well, it turned out it mattered where in Michigan your Republicans were coming from. Because if they were coming from one part of the state, they look different than Republicans who are in a different part of the state. Um, or if they had a different education level. So now pollsters understand you got to get those balances right. And so they're doing that. They've they've tried to correct for that. Um, the last thing I'll say about 2020 is I'm a big believer in what is called uniform swing. So elections, you know, there's this group of swing voters and um, lots of partisans are in their camps, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, so there are some people who genuinely make up their mind party election to election party by party. And then there are some partisans who sometimes switch and that makes a, elections swing. Um, and then different people come in and out of the electorate, too. So that's important, too. Um, but typically, all of that swing is moving in one direction or another. And so you can see from 2008 to 2012 in all but one state, Obama does worse in 2012 than he did in 2008. Why? Because 2008, global financial crisis, everybody's, you know, all that swing is going toward the Democrats. Okay. In 2012, some of those people are coming home to Republicans. So the shine comes off of Obama a little bit. 2016 was different. The swing was not uniform. Some states moved heavily toward Clinton, California, um, Texas, Arizona. Other states moved heavily toward Trump, Ohio, Iowa. So now, the, so the question for everybody in 2016 was, oh, is this is uniform swing over? You know, elections aren't going to be like that anymore. So the question is 2020, what does that look like? Well, we don't have election outcomes yet. But if we look now at polling, if you look now even at where people say they're going to vote in 2020 and where they tell us they voted in 2016, the swing is incredibly uniform across states but also across any group of people that you want to throw at me, men, women, suburban men, suburban women, independents, independent men, independent women, independent women who live in the suburbs, independent men who live, they're all moving at about the same rate, um, high single digits to low double digits away from Trump. So that suggests to me that 2020 will be one of these uniform swings. And that's why you're starting to see in some of these states, Pennsylvania, um, you know, that, that the state is going to quote unquote flip, right? And that is not really anything other than the fact that the whole electorate is moving toward the Democrat. And for some states, that means the result was so close in 2016 that you're going to get a different one. Okay, I want to ask a final question, and I'm going to ask you to answer it first, Lynn, and then we'll conclude with Zev, because I know you have a seminar to, to get to. Number, It's actually a two-part question. Do you want to venture a prediction? And yes, or either way, um, what do you think the enduring impact of Donald Trump will be on Amer American political culture? On the first point, um, I think Trump will get fewer votes in 2020 than he got in 2016. Um, and so I'm going to I'm, I'm going to stop short of then saying what the outcome of the election is. But I think he will get many fewer votes than he got in 2016. Um, the second thing, um, his long term impact uh, is a little bit difficult, I think, to tell. And it depends a lot on future leaders in the Republican Party and um, those political entrepreneurs and elites and how they are going to move forward uh, if he is not reelected. Um, and so the direction of the party, I think, is a little bit unknown. And that means that his impact on the country is also, I think, um, a little bit unknown. Thanks. Thank you very much. Zev, same questions. Um, you want to venture a prediction? What do you think the enduring impact of, of Trump will be? First, I want to correct something I said at the very outset. The, the two states that Obama lost uh, in 12 that he didn't 
that he won in the eight were North Carolina and Indiana and uh, in Iowa, he won, but by about half of the margin that he won in 2008. Anyway, um, just, just want to make the record clear. Look, uh, my heart and part of my mind uh, thinks that we're on the verge of, uh, of, a, of a pretty big victory for the, for, for Biden. And the bigger the victory, the better it will be uh, for the country, for the democracy, because I think there's a lot of hanky-panky uh, that is at play as we speak and will be at play after November 3rd. And I think that Trump uh, will stop at nothing. Uh, and in a close election, uh, he'll have some ammunition. At least he'll think he'll have ammunition uh, to to disrupt things. Um so, and the bigger the margin, the more likely it is that the Democrats will also take the Senate. Uh, and that, that's that's a very important thing because if Biden wins and the Senate is still in the hands of Mitch McConnell, um, we've been through that dance before, and it's it's not going to be a pretty picture, and it's not going to make it possible easy for Biden to uh, to carry out an agenda. What the lasting impact of Trump is going to be? Uh, I, I don't think Trump is the problem. I think Trumpism is the problem. And he, he didn't create Trumpism. Uh, he, he was the surfer who got on his surfboard and rode that wave. Um, and uh, so if he disappears from the scene, which I don't think he is going to, even if he loses, um, there, you know, there's a whole world out there, you know, that 40%, 45% that are very powerful, powerful enough to silence the, the the moderate, if there is such a thing, Republicans in the Senate, um, it, it's it's a uh, I, I think it it's, it's we're in a very perilous time, and uh, and, and I think the if Biden wins the presidency uh, next week, uh, he's going to have a very very tough road ahead. Um, a the economic impacts of COVID and COVID itself. B uh, how to bring the country back together. See how to bring his own party back together. Let's not forget that there is a there is a schism in within the Democratic Party, which is being covered up right now. Uh, but it won't be covered up after the election. And uh, there there are issues and scores that people want to settle. And he's gonna he's gonna have to bring all of his experience and all of his talents uh, to try to bring all of those disparate factors together. And the the the, the Trump right, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, they're out there. He has unleashed. Um, you know, a latent racism and anti-Semitism and bigotry uh, against Muslims. I mean, there is no community uh, uh, in in this country other than 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 uh, you know middle middle America whites who who are not a little bit less secure today than they were four years ago. I, I tell you, I feel that personally, uh, and uh, and and I think. I think it's a reality. He has changed the nature of political discourse in this country and has made it acceptable to do things and say things that were unthinkable just four years ago. So I think his lasting impact uh, is uh, going to be significant. Okay. Well, um, I look forward to following up with you after the election to see where we're at. Um, it's been a really illuminating hour. Thank you so much. Lynn and Zev for being with us on Then and Now. Thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this episode or other episodes by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu, L-U-S-K-I-N, center at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a safe and healthy day and get out and vote. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>